I wonder if there will come a day in light of what we've been talking and thinking about as a church family, when our great regret will simply be that we didn't love God better. And in particular, that we didn't love one another better as an expression of that. Jesus says that those things are all tangled up, right? Love for God and love for his people are this great inseparable pair. 1 John 4 says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I wonder if that might be our great regret one day. But if it is, at least you have an excuse. Okay? Um, you have to love these people. Okay? These people across the room these ornery, difficult people, okay? Um, but if we're honest, it's really not all their fault. Um, in fact, it's not even mostly their fault. This regret, if we have it, will be on you and on me, right? Because we are, as a result of our sin, we are bent in on me and our default setting is that the church is here for me the church is here to love and serve me and my family not that we are here for the church to love and serve these people we tend to live as a blogger Ted Schofield put it on the island of me there's an article titled I'm okay you're selfish that was in the New York Times and Magazine, and it reported that only 17% of people say that they are overly concerned about themselves. That is, they're selfish. But those same people said that 60% of other people are overly concerned about themselves. They're selfish. I'm okay, you're selfish, is the idea behind that. And I think that's our bent. If left to our own devices, that's our bent. And so we need help. We need outside help to love one another well. And today we want to look at the beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit in helping us do that. He is the outside help that we need that enables us to love one another. And so if you'll bow with me in prayer, we'll, we'll think about that together today. Father, help us. Help us diminish what may be our greatest of regrets one day, that we have not loved you because we have not loved one another. Jesus, you said that to love you is to obey and keep your commands, and we know that this is one of the great ones, to love your people. So help us now by your word, bring encouragement and hope and courage and faith and obedience from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the Spirit is kind of a hidden, maybe even a lost ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws us into the love of God. It's perhaps the most beautiful thing that he does for us. He draws us into the love of God, into the very love that's shared among the members of the Trinity. 
In John 16, John is writing this way about the Holy Spirit. He records the teaching of Jesus that goes like this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit takes what belongs to God and he, he declares it to us. And part of what he declares and even shares with us is the love that the Father has for his Son. He declares and even shares that very love with us. The very next chapter of John, Jesus is praying, and he says to the Father, I made known to them, my disciples, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So that we are loved by God the Father with the same love that he loved his only begotten son, King Jesus. Think about that for a minute. You are loved by God the Father with the same love that he loves his only begotten son, King Jesus. I am um, deeply indebted and delight, delight to recommend to you again, if you haven't picked it up yet, uh, some of this, uh, I'll quote from it frequently in the first part of this message, is this book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Uh, I resonate with this book. I'm encouraged by it. I'm challenged by it. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it to you. You'll have to read it a little slower than the novels that you're reading, but it is accessible and winsome and will help you love God more. Um, and in that book, he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, how great and lovely then is the work of the Spirit. He unites us to the Son so that the Father's love for the Son also encompasses us. He draws us to share the Father's own enjoyment of the Son, and he causes us to share the Son's delight in the Father. He says, what could be more delicious than to keep in step with a Spirit whose purpose is that? This is a wonderful thing that the Spirit declares and even shares with you that you are loved in the, in the same way that the Father loves His only Son. He loves you. And, and this can be really hard for us to, to grasp and believe. And uh, Jeanette Cliff George tells a story that helps. She says, I was on a short flight from Tucson to Phoenix, and I noticed a young woman with her baby, and they were both dressed in white pinafores, and the mother was smiling. A little baby was saying, Dada, Dada. And a little baby was darling. She wore a little pink bow where there would probably be hair pretty soon, and it was just darling. And they sat down opposite me, and every time they went by, the baby, anybody went by, the baby would say, Dada, Dada. The young mother said they were going home and daddy was waiting for them. And she says, I think that must have been a long trip, like overnight. 
And everybody was so happy. We enjoyed the little baby. And the mother had a little thermos with orange juice in it. And she kept feeding the baby a little fruit and then a little juice. And it was a rough flight. And every time the baby cried, the mother fed her a little bit more orange juice and a little bit more fruit. She says, I don't know how to get out of this story without telling you the truth. The flight was very turbulent. The flight was so rough that the attendants had to stay seated. All of the fruit that had gone down came up. I think more came up, she says, than it had gone down. I think there was more up there than there was baby, and it was startling. The carpet even was not in good condition. She says a mess. Those of us on the opposite side of the aisle were not in good condition at all either. We kept trying to tell the young mother it was fine. We were handing her tissues and things. She says most of us have been babies. It's a very loving time, but a mess. The baby was crying, and she looked awful. We couldn't cry, but we looked awful. The mother was so sorry about it, and we landed. And the minute we landed, baby was fine. Dada, dada. The rest of us were just awful. She said, we began to get off the plane. We all moved very carefully. She said, I had on a suit, and I was trying to decide whether I should burn it or just cut off the sleeves. <laughs> she said, have you ever tried to get away from something really unpleasant, and it was you? She says, well, that's the way we were. It was really bad. She says, I looked out of the plane, and there waiting was the young man who had to be daddy. White slacks, white shirt, white flowers, and a little green paper. I thought, I know what's going to happen. He's going to run to that baby who now looks awful. I mean, the hair and the pinafore were dreadful. And he's going to run to that baby, get one look, and keep on running saying, not my kid. And as he ran to the young mother, I wouldn't say she threw the baby at him, but she did kind of leave quickly to go get cleaned up. And he picked up that baby, um, and I watched him as he hugged that baby and kissed that baby and stroked that baby's hair. And he said, Daddy's babies come home. Daddy's babies come home. She says, I watched him all the way to the luggage claim area, and he never stopped kissing that baby. He never stopped welcoming that baby back home. She says, and I thought, where did I ever get the idea that my father God is less loving than a young daddy in white slacks and a white shirt with white flowers and a green paper? So you, you should believe this. This is true about your father. He loves you with the same love that he loves his son. And the spirit draws you into it. He draws you into that love. Paul says something stunning about all this in Romans chapter 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's pretty stunning. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. This is the really stunning part, though. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That the Holy Spirit pours, lavishly pours God's love into our hearts. This happens, of course, when we become a Christian at our salvation. And, and honestly, this is why being a Christian is so freaking awesome, right? Because the love of God the Father, the same love that he loved his son, is poured 
into our hearts. It's not just a brain thing. He pours that love into our hearts. We are the beloved of God. But he also does it day by day. This is an experiential thing that we can grow in. We can grow increasingly to experience and delight in this spirit-poured love. And the way that he does it um, often is he, he shows us the wonder of Christ, who is the great demonstration of the love of God for us. Charles Spurgeon was a great uh, preacher who lived centuries ago, a couple centuries ago, and he says, um, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. So, one of the most wondrous places to be in awe of who Jesus is, is uh, certain sections in the book of Revelation. Um, Daniel Creswell preached on a couple of them. I would like to just read one of those to you. Um, so, you can just think afresh, and the Spirit can hold up Christ, and you can be in awe of Christ afresh. Revelation chapter 5 says that between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. He goes on and says, we're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so the Spirit takes the Word and exalts Christ. And the more we see Him, the more we know Him, the more we love Him. It's an inescapable reality. The more you learn about look upon, think about, worship Jesus, the more you love him. He's just that beautiful. He's just that wondrous. It makes us love him back. 
This is, Reeves puts it this way. He says, by revealing the beauty, love, glory, and kindness of Christ to me, the Spirit kindles in me an ever deeper and more sincere love for God. By all of this, then, the Spirit draws us into relationship with the Son, into the same love the Father has for His Son, and the Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts, and we're changed by it. Our desires are changed. It's like our spiritual taste buds are changed. We find that we now are learning how to love God in return. Famously, John put it, we love because he first loved us. And central to loving God back in this way is loving his people. Right? The Spirit, by all of this, fuels our love for one another. This is the Spirit's work, lavishly pouring God's love into our hearts so that we love God by loving one another. Now, the Spirit just doesn't give us a desire to do this. He equips us uniquely to do this. And Paul writes brilliantly about this in 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to open your Bibles there, we'll be there the rest of our time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7, Paul writes, To each, that is to each member in the church at Corinth, to each member in the church at North Wake, we could say, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the works of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. He essentially brackets this teaching with that statement. Back in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this is true of each and every member of Christ's body, what he is writing about here. Of the church, of this church, this is true about you. That the Spirit, each one is given a manifestation. You are given a manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit manifests Himself through you. It's not that He gives you some gift and then leaves. But the Spirit manifests Himself through you. Reeves says the Spirit is not like some divine milkman leaving the gift of life on our doorsteps only to move on. In giving us life, He comes into us, comes to be with us and to remain with us. So the very Spirit of God longs to work through you in a very specific and unique way. And it says it's for the common good. That is for the good of the church. It's, it's for the good of the people sitting across from you. Again, this is the language of caring for one another. This is the language of love, that the Spirit wants to manifest Himself through you for the good of the people sitting across from you. He wants to enable you, to give you a unique ability to love 
his people. Um, so the list then, in between, of all those different gifts, we call them, uh, all those different manifestations of wisdom, faith, miracles, and such, um, that's not an exhaustive list. Okay? It's a representative list of the way the Spirit happily works through you and through me for the good of his people. Verse 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the spirit has particularly chosen a way he wants to manifest himself through you, each one, through you. The spirit of the living God, the very Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity intends to manifest himself through you for the good of his people, to love his people. Are you, are you good with that? Are you on board with that? Are you aware of that? Are you cooperating with that? Are you releasing that ability that the Spirit gives you to serve and bless and encourage the church? Are you permitting this great kindness given to the church by the Spirit to flow through you uniquely? Are you available to make your contribution for the common good in love. See, this is the work the Spirit is eager to do through you. He wants to enable you to love God by loving His people by a unique manifestation of the Spirit in and through you. Now, skip down a few verses to verse 14. And there, Paul is likening the church to a physical body. And he says... Um, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So, Paul is painting an absurdity for us, right? Parts of our physical bodies defecting out of inferiority or envy or the like. Your foot walks out in discouraged protest. Your ears cease to listen to the counsel that they really are needed. And, and by this absurd illustration, Paul is crossing off envy and inferiority and competition and comparison. He says, this simply cannot happen. You, like the foot and the ear, are needed and God-designed part of the body. You belong in the church. He says, it's absurd for you to just bow out of it. Okay. You're an essential part of the health and beauty of the church. Every single member matters. Each makes a needful contribution the church becomes increasingly dysfunctional as members pull back, withhold, and sit it out. And according to George Barna research, about three out of every five unchurched persons in America are self-professed Christians. The counts go into the millions. More than 10 million Christians, self-professed Christians, are unchurched. No wonder the church is so dysfunctional. Needful members are sitting it out. 
This is simply contrary to the will and design of God for his church and for your life. If you would like to get out of the will of God, if you would like to oppose the work of the Spirit in your life, simply drop out of active, meaningful relationships in the church, and you're there. Paul is that clear about it. Tim Stafford writes for a magazine, Christianity Today, and he says, For Paul, a Christian without his church is as unthinkable as a human being with no relatives. A person may quarrel with his kin, but he cannot leave them. They are his own flesh and blood. So it is with the church. And furthermore, they are Jesus' flesh and blood. Life in Christ is a corporate affair. The Bible simply does not know of the existence of an individual, isolated Christian. So, how'd you get here this morning? Well, Paul would say, the Spirit put you here. In this body, for a reason, and that is to love God back by loving His people as the Spirit manifests Himself through you in a very unique and needful way. Now, Drop down to verse 19 and 20. It says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If we don't embrace his design, right, then the church becomes some kind of monstrosity, a giant eye or ear or elbow. And we've talked about this before. If you were to pick a gift that's most prevalent and sought at at North Wake, uh, what do you think that would probably be? Now, we're a stone's throw from a seminary that manufactures preachers, right? And so the gift of teaching and preaching is especially prominent. At North Wake, throw a rock, hit a preacher boy, right? That's kind of what God has gifted us with. What does that mean then is that those of you who have other gifts, gifts of helping and administration, gifts of healing, gifts of faith, gifts of mercy, gifts other than those related to teaching and speaking, you play a very significant role here. Worthy, as Paul says, if we had read it all, of special honor. You keep us from becoming a giant mouth, okay? A megaphone. Your gifts matter here, perhaps especially here. That's not that those of us who have teaching gifts don't matter, but know that you do, that Paul is teaching you that you have a place and your service matters. There are many parts, mercifully, by God's good design. Every part matters. You matter. And then right in the middle of that, the verse I skipped, he says, as it is, again, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. The, the diversity of the body is by God's design. Your conversion, your inclusion in it is by God's loving design and choice. Your place in it, that North Wake is your, your church family, your giftedness, that's by God's loving design and choice. 
whether that's teaching or helping or healing or administration or whatever it is, you're placed in the church by his design to make the church beautiful because the love of God is shared freely with the people in this room. Uh, I'm partway through a book called The Boys in the Boat. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read it. It's a captivating book. Um, it's a true story about the 1936 University of Washington crew team. That is, you know, rowing. Uh, crew team, which went from backwater obscurity to a gold medal in Hitler's 1936 Berlin Olympics. Uh, Daniel James Brown, the author, shows how this team from the University of Washington built a team from kids raised on farms in logging towns and shipyards, and they blew away their Californian rivals, bested the cream of New England to become the American Olympic team and win the gold in those 36 Berlin Olympics. This is the way he describes it. It's, it's very apropos for what we're talking about today. He says, races are won by crews, and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. He says, a crew composed entirely of eight amped up, overly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in the boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge. Someone to hold something in reserve. Someone to pick a fight. Someone to make peace. Someone to think things through. Someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow, all of this must mesh. He said, that's the steepest challenge. And then he says, even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew. Accept it and accept the others as they are. He says, it is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. See, you, by God's design, are part of the crew at North Wake. And when it all comes together, it is exquisite. Okay? Are you willing to embrace that? Not, not that you have to figure out what your gift is, and then find a place that fits your gift. Often it's the other way around. You serve and you watch the Spirit work. Skip with me down just to the last couple of verses in this passage that we'll touch on this morning. Down in verse 24 and 25, it says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. See, if we let elitism or superiority or favoritism or apathy divide the church, we'll fail in our mission, which is wholly dependent on the way we love one another as a display of our love of God. There was a survey that LifeWay Christian Resources did amongst people who are unchurched. And the, of the five major complaints they had about, uh, about the church, 
two of them are relevant to us this morning. One was Christians treating other Christians poorly, a lack of love. And Christians saying they believe but not attending church. Isn't that interesting that that bothers the unchurched? You know, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we do not care for one another, we have failed in one of the things that Jesus says is our great distinctive, loving one another. So God has designed the body, the church, to protect against division and to promote mutual care and love for one another, me for you, okay, and you for me, to such an extent, Paul says, that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, this is descriptive of the reality of the way the church is built. We affect one another because we are one with one another. It is an inescapable reality. But it is also prescriptive of the way we must be together here at Northway. We must be building relationships with each other such that our sufferings and our joys are shared. Are you that engaged with people in this room that you share joys and you, you set, share sorrows with someone else in this room, with people in this room? When was the last time you high-fived somebody and celebrated with somebody in this room? When was the last time you took somebody out to dinner just to celebrate something good in their world? Um, when was the last time you bowed in glad prayer for God's favor on someone else in this room? When was the last time you wept with someone in this room? Heartbroken. When was the last time you made a phone call to check on someone who is suffering? Send an email. Send a text. How you doing? When was the last time you dropped by a hospital waiting room to check on someone who is suffering, who's part of your church family? This is God's design for us. That if one member suffers, we love one another such that we all suffer. And if one member is honored, we love one another such that we all rejoice. The Spirit of God is longing to fill your heart with the love of God such that this is increasingly our reality. You should welcome this. Let me tell you a couple ways you can welcome this. You can welcome the Spirit's intent. One, you need to make room for it in your life. You need to make room in your life just to ponder how much God loves you. And there's not much pondering room in our, in our life these days, okay? We filled it up with stuff, especially technology. Americans spend an average of five and a half hours a day with digital media. More than half of that time on mobile devices. Um, there was a recent survey of female students at Baylor University that reported using their cell phones an average of 10 hours a day. That, that doesn't leave much room to ponder the love of God. Ten hours a day. 
we check our phones 221 times a day, an average of every 4.3 minutes, and I know it's driving some of you nuts. Matter of fact, you've already checked your phone during this sermon about 10 times by now, if you're an average person. And that number, they say, is probably too low because people underestimate their, their mobile usage. Make room to ponder, to just sit and read what Scripture teaches about the love of God for you. These verses we've been talking about today, John chapter 17, verse 26, that the Father loves you with the same love that he loves his only begotten Son, King Jesus. Think about that. Worship. Weep with joy that that's true of you. Because we desperately need it. We desperately need it. We need time to ponder and we need time to serve. Time for the love of God to flow through us to others. Time to care, to love these people across the room from us. And it takes time. And we're often too busy to demonstratively care by a shared meal or by a leisurely cup of coffee. We're just too busy. Our yards look good and our cars are detailed and our kids are playing on multiple sport teams at once. But Jesus' command to love one another has been neglected along the way. And this will be our great regret if we don't make room for it and welcome it in our lives. Welcome this. Make room for this. Pray for this. Let me give you two short prayers that Paul prayed for the church that you can pray for yourself and you can pray for our church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to direct your hearts to the love of God that you get it, that you delight in it, that it would change your spiritual taste buds so that you love it more than anything else in this world. A second one from 1 Thessalonians is this. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So pray, take Paul's prayer and make it yours, that I might increase and abound in love for the people in my church family. God, grow that love in me. If you don't grow it, it's not going to happen. Make it your prayer. These two simple things, your prayer. And again, when this begins to happen, I love the way Daniel James Brown unknowingly described us when he said this. Each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept the others as they are, and it is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. Okay. Bow with me in prayer, please. So now as you sit before your Father, just think for a moment. Just talk with Him. What is He, by His Spirit, longing to do through and in you to love the people in this room? What gifts is he longing to awaken? What service is he desire for you to undertake with glad hearts? What is God saying to you?
Father, by your spirit, pour your love into our hearts that we might love one another such that when one suffers, all suffer. And when one is honored, all rejoice. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake.